I've not really talked about this with anyone, but hmm. you're into religion and spirituality. I might be phrasing this wrong, but religion and spirituality and philosophy and It's true and and okay. uh, things that go bump in the night and and uh, and and shamans and all of this stuff. And so, can we just perhaps start with how did you get into that? What what drew you into that? Because some people they're economists, some no, people well, they're historians, well, and they study war and they study soldiers. We know this people. Is true. This we know is people true. like Salmon, and uh, but for you it's <laughs> but yeah. for you it's it's the the transcendental. It, it's that. What's yes, um, I'm not sure exactly why. Uh, I grew up in a very straight laced, very what we call white bread America suburb. Mm. We were all Protestant Christians. There were just different kinds of Protestant churches. Mm. We had one Catholic family in the neighborhood. We thought they were weirdos. <laughs> That was cultural diversity. For me, we certainly had no different races. Jewish people were just a rumor. What, what kind of year, uh, decade were we talking well, about? Well, it was 60s. Okay. 60s in a suburb of Detroit, Michigan. Um, I, I grew up right between Eminem and Mitt Romney. <laughs> If you saw the movie Eminem, Eight Mile, I, I, he, he, about his origins, very rough, mostly black neighborhood of Southfield and Eight Mile Road. I grew up on Southfield and 14 Mile Road just six miles away, but an entire different world away. We had no black people in my area. Mm. They didn't dare to come up. Um, For me, but, Detroit and, is all And just a few miles north of me yeah. was where Mitt Romney grew up uh, in an extremely wealthy neighborhood, big mansions, mm. all millionaires. Uh, Mitt Romney's father was very rich and was governor of Michigan for a while. And so, so they had quite the mansion up there. And I, so I like to say that. I grew up right in between Eminem and Mitt Romney, mm. um, middle class. very. But it was very bland. Mm. And I was dissatisfied with Protestant Christianity. It just didn't seem complete or perhaps not fully true. It wasn't enough. And in high school, we had a special chapter for one month uh, about China. Mm. And it hooked me. I got real interested, this kind of whole alternative civilization mm. that we never learned about in history classes. You know, back then, mm. it was just Greece and Rome and then medieval Europe and then England and then America was the progression of history from primitive to perfection. And uh, that's all we learned. I hardly even mentioned the Middle East Arabs and such and their contributions. But then there was China, mm. a whole different separate civilization that was just as great and often greater than what happened in Europe. Mm. And I became fascinated. We don't know about this. Back then, the only Americans who'd ever been to China were Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger on their very super surprise, remember 1972, mm -hmm. um, shocked everybody. But then by the mid 70s, I mean, we didn't know much, but at the University of Michigan, I took courses, whatever I could, and I did a lot of private reading on Taoism, Buddhism, mm -hmm. Confucianism, just try, trying to figure out uh, 
what this alternative was and these different ways of thinking and seeing the world. And I was quite fascinated and I wanted more. Mm. Um, I moved out after graduation, moving out to California. And so San Francisco, they had a Chinatown. So I got actually meet Chinese people. There weren't any in my suburb. Mm. I met I met an Asian person for the first time when I was 20 years old. It was that isolated like that. So I went out to San Francisco. They had Chinatown. Also got into Native American shamanism. Okay. That was pretty fascinating. The American Indian tribes mm-hmm. and their way of, uh, their Stone Age way of looking at the world that still survived. And that was very interesting to study and experience. And going to the great national parks out west, Mm. I really fell in love with mountains, big mountains, fantastic, beautiful, rocky mountains. But in America, those mountains are just nature, beautiful nature, wild animals, but just natural. Mm. There's no human culture going on except a little bit of the natives. Now, coming to Korea, then, finally, after many adventures in Korea, finding these beautiful mountains, great, big, beautiful, climbable mountains, all granite, rocky, lovely, yeah. uh, but accessible mountains, but then filled with spiritual culture. Mountains that had lots of shamanism, Taoism, Buddhism, Confucianism in the mountains. Where in the mountains? Every. Where mm. um, the greatest temples are down in the valleys, you know, the, the the valleys with the mountains around them. But then many Buddhist hermitages and shaman shrines are further up the mountain, mm. never exactly on the peak or the summit. Koreans, Chinese do that. They build a temple right on the summit. Koreans don't, never have. It's a cultural difference. Koreans respect the mountain spirit too much to put a building right on the peak. They would mm. seem too arrogant. But they do on the slopes and on top of cliffs and such. And uh, the, the Confucian shrines are also pretty down low in the valleys, but mm. right at the feet of these beautiful mountains. So all this spirituality out there, not so much in the cities. Mm. The, the city just devoted to commerce and working life and apartment complexes, but then all all this great culture. Korea is kind of exclusive about that, you know, in in Asia, possibly the world. Uh, Every other major Asian country, let's say, that had Buddhism, Mm. Taoism, shamanism, the the biggest temples, the great temples are right downtown. Mm. The greatest temples of the nation. Like you go to Bangkok, the the Emerald, Emerald Buddha Temple, greatest of the nation, is right next to the king's palace in the center of Bangkok. Mm. Uh, same thing in Tokyo mm. uh, or Kyoto and uh, every other uh, Beijing, every other Asian capital or a, a major Asian city. Uh, big temples right downtown. Mm. Now, Korea is the only one that does not have that. And you know why? Tell me. Oh, but you're right. Well, I've just realized this now that you have to. There are get no out. old yeah. temples within Seoul, yeah. at least within the downtown area. No old temples at all. The, the main headquarters temple was built starting 1910. It's quite modern. That's Jogesa. 
It's because they put um, the, the Joseon dynasty put Seoul or Hanyang as the capital, and that's Confucianism, and there's no temples inside. Well, they banned a... Buddhism, yeah, and shamanism. Mm. They made them illegal, mm. which a kind of a soft illegal. Let's mm-hmm. say they did not kill the Buddhist monks, mm. but they said they wanted them to secularize. You know, like take off those robes and get a job, <laughs> get married, have children, get a job, be useful to society. Yeah. But if you insist on being a Buddhist monk, you have to leave the cities, mm. every city that had a wall around it and gates. Monks were not allowed, neither were shamans, mm. allowed to enter the gates. They were expelled. And there were many big temples in the cities of Korea, including this one, but mm. especially in Gaesong, the medieval capital in Gyeongju, there were big temples in the city. They tore them all down, mm. destroyed them. They melted the Buddha statues and made coins. They destroyed all the temples and they kicked all the monks out. The monks had to go. To, there were already temples in the mountains mm. for special study and worship and such. All the monks had to go there mm. to the mountain temples and for 500 years living in exile from civilization. They lived up on the mountain. They had to grow their own vegetables, soybeans. They had to beg for rice from the local villagers. They barely survived. Mm -hmm. They had to fight tigers and bears um, when necessary to protect their temple. They were remote and isolated and could barely serve the public. It's amazing that Korean Buddhism survived 500 Mm -hmm. years of that. In isolation, there's some reasons that they survived, but it managed as a religion. There continued to be masters gained enlightenment and then adopted disciples and led them to enlightenment. The generational transmission did continue for 500 years. It became much, much smaller religion. When Korea made Buddhism illegal, it had been Buddhist for a thousand years, Mm -hmm. a solidly, officially Buddhist kingdom for a thousand years. No other Asian country ever did this, ever banned any religion for such a long time, especially not Buddhism. The other Asians thought Korea was kind of crazy. They were so fanatical about the Neo-Confucianism, they did this. So for 500 years, one of the first things the Japanese colonialists did in taking over Korea by 1910, they legalized Buddhism. They thought it was nuts. Uh, And Buddhist monks entered the cities of Korea for the first time in 500 years in uh, around 1910. It's interesting that it wasn't a, 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 genocide is the wrong word, but it wasn't sort of an execution or a taking over. There wasn't sort of a war no. of the roses or 30 years war Catholics and Protestants, but it was just more of a, of course it wouldn't have been all roses, but, well, you, but you know what I mean? It, it wasn't sort of a, an elimination. Koreans are of not them. like that. They're not no, so violent in getting. persecution. They made Buddhist monks one of the lowest categories of social class, mm. along with butchers and prostitutes and such, just considered the very lowest part of society. And if any, if a person left a noble family and went to become a monk, mm. as sometimes happened, or a, or a nun for mm. a woman, uh, the family would just kind of pretend that they had died and they were just gone and wouldn't say anything to anybody, would just act like they had died of disease. Same thing as if some uh, woman of the family became a shaman. 
Mm-hmm. They were just exiled, and the family would tell people, oh, she passed away. Too bad. Um, so, so it's the great spiritual culture, for that reason, is in the mountains. Yeah. And those 500 years of great suffering by the monks, and they were lonely and desperate and isolated and wishing they could serve civilization, but that, and then totally turned around. Mm. And by today, they're the luckiest people in Korea. They, they live in the national parks mm. of Korea. Imagine if you had a house in Yosemite or Yellowstone or whatever's the British equivalent, um, the most beautiful mm. landscape of the entire country, and mm. you have a home there and nobody yeah. can kick you out. And now that there's paved roads, there's electricity, internet, satellite dish, comfortable furniture, everything, it's a lovely place to live. And they have a very nice lifestyle, and billionaires would envy them for the property they live on. That's a wonderful way of describing it. It's probably lucky that they don't believe in time, so those 500 years pass. But when I facetiously say they don't believe in time, there are different types of Buddhism. So we Mm. know, for example, Theravada and Mahayana, and they spread. But in terms of Korean Buddhism, what what is Korean Buddhism? How would you describe it? Can you do a Buddhism 101, like a Korean Buddhism 101? I know it's a very difficult thing. It requires a long time, but... Well, it's Chinese Mahayana Buddhism. Uh-huh. Missionaries first brought it by about 300 AD, and they were bringing kind of the early Central Asian Buddhism um, into China and then further into Korea. Mm. The Chinese spent hundreds of years just trying to translate this stuff, just trying to understand what it was really about. By about 500 AD and later, you actually have Chinese Buddhism. Mm. They have a different way of thinking than people in India. Mm. Once they got a lot of it translated, they didn't like it too much. And they started creating Chinese style according to their thinking, mm. much more aligned with like Taoism, native native values and principles, then that is flowing into Korea after 500. Mm. And some famous Korean monks went to China to study under some of the greatest masters of 500, 600, uh, 650. And so, uh, and then would return to Korea and bring the teachings, the latest, the greatest, the best teachings. And it very much displaced the early, earlier Buddhism, let's mm. call it, more similar to Theravada from Central Asia, and became Chinese-style Mahayana Buddhism. But then they, like everything else that they imported from China, mm. um, they Koreanized it. They made it a Korean style, yeah. a little bit different. Of course, language difference, but... Um, And in particular, there's something about Korea. They've always desired unity, Mm. unity of belief. Mm. Now, see, China's very different. China's always been an empire. And they have always then just accepted. It's very natural. There are people with different skin colors. Mm -hmm. There's different languages out on the street of the capital. Mm. There's different religions. There's three main Chinese religions uh, and then 
half a dozen other things has always been a story in Christianity, Islam coming in later, whatever, and it was all accepted. Mm. China has always been something like London or New York, mm. cosmopolitan. And the gentleman would kind of be aware of all the different religions and know something about them, but not take any of them too seriously. Uh, such Now, Korea, very different. Mm. One religion at a time. They, this is a small population. It's always been relatively small population on this rough, rocky peninsula mm. with, a, with not great fertile soil, not very fertile really, mm. compared to the plains of China or the volcano plains of Japan, mm. much more fertile. Japan quickly got twice as much population as Korea and always maintained about that. Um, Koreans were small population and therefore on the defense. Mm. As is, I think it's pretty well known, Korea never invaded another country. Mm -hmm. And they're kind of proud of that. And on the other hand, they're kind of whining about it like, <laughs> as if they didn't know. It's not really because they're such good and virtuous people. No, it's just because they never could. Mm. Small population. All they could do was defend themselves. And they felt the need for unity. Mm. So from very early on, there was a drive in Korean Buddhism to bring together the various schools of Buddhism to mm. unite them, mm. which never happened in China or in Japan or Thailand or any other such place. Uh, they all have five or six different major schools of Buddhism, and China had a dozen, and that was fine with them. Mm. But Korea, starting in the 600s, you had a great genius named Won Hyo who may tried to unite the philosophies of Buddhism, of scholastic academic Buddhism, to show that they different schools really meant the same thing. It was leading to the same enlightenment, ultimately. And then later, by 1100, there was a royal prince who tried to unify Buddhism under the Tiantai. Mm -hmm. uh, in Korea, we call it the Chunte school, the heavenly platform Buddhism. Tried to It's a very encompassing kind of Buddhism from eastern China, mm -hmm. starting about 500 A.D., by 1100, he's using it to try to unify Korean Buddhism, but then he died early at only 42 years old, and it, it all fell apart. Then by 1200, you finally get an actual unification, especially the academic scholastic Buddhism had always been fighting with mm. the Zen Buddhism. Mm. Now, what we call Zen Buddhism, that's pure meditational. That was a revolution that started in central China, 520 A.D., where by that time, Buddhism was a thousand years old, and it was pretty decadent, fairly mm. degenerate. It was all about the solid gold Buddha statues and the luxurious temples and hundreds of monks who would sit there, study, study, study their entire life, memorizing the sutras, arguing about the, the sutras are scriptures of what Buddha said, memorizing it, arguing about it, writing essays, debating, um, just scholastic study, just like in an academic university. What do they believe? So we haven't got there. So before we get to Zen, I'm just conscious. So they are studying, they're becoming decadent. There's all these uh, attempts for unity from one year onwards. But for people that might not know, what, are they core tenets of their faith? Is it all reincarnation and breaking the wheel of samsara and achieving moksha? Or for the Korean Buddhists? Achieving enlightenment, yes. The, the reincarnation thing was always 
devotional Buddhism. That's the mm. third kind of Buddhism for the common people, devotional mm -hmm. Buddhism, what we call religion, mm. praying to statues, believing in gods in the sky, uh, talking about heaven and hell and reincarnation. That's devotional Buddhism. Mm. That's always been for the common people, the uneducated ones. Mm. The educated monks were reading the words, the supposed words of Buddha, mm. what he actually said and lectured. Remember, he was a teacher for 55 years. And so he taught a lot of stuff, a lot of different lectures, and it became more sophisticated as he got older. So they would read what he said and then read commentaries. Mm -hmm. There came to be a vast library of commentaries about what he said, uh, explaining it and explicating the philosophy, the cosmology, the intensive psychology. It's very... Buddhism is very psychological. It's all about how the mind works. Some people say Buddhism, if you strip away the devotional mm. religious aspects, Buddhism is a kind of psychology. Uh, it's just all about how the mind works and how to make it work better. And uh, the, the point of enlightenment is just to be awoken and truly your mind working perfectly within this world without obstacles. Is it to remove the ego or am I coming at that wrong? That the Getting rid of the ego, yes, of desires and wants and personal feeling to be able to see the world kind of objectively, um, to, be, to be one with it, mm. to be capable of that perspective at least and operating without, without the kind of craving and desires that harms you or harms the people around you, that causes you to do things to hurt others mm. and even to hurt yourself and such. The, the frustrations of life, you get what you want, but then you're not satisfied mm. with it, or you don't get what you want and then you're frustrated and angry. Getting rid of that entire thing to where you no longer want. So. Academic Buddhism was all about that. And I say it's somewhat degenerate. Monks just study their entire life. Mm. Enlightenment was considered when you understood some particular sutra perfectly. Mm. It was exactly like the modern university life. You, you spent, as a monk, you'd study roughly 20 years of heavy study, endless debate and analysis. Finally, you took exams and you had interviews with the, the great masters and they would certify you enlightened and give you a piece of paper and say, you understand this sutra, the, the Lotus Sutra, the Flower Garland Sutra, the Nirvana Sutra, one of the big ones. You understand this and you are qualified to teach the next generation. That's what a PhD is, yeah, right? Yeah. Exactly. And uh, you'd get that piece of paper and you could start teaching young, young monks from the beginning. So that was Buddhism. But then a guy named Bodhidharma, China, 520 AD, comes into a central Chinese kingdom and he says, you're wasting all your time. Throw the books in the fire. And the golden Buddha statue, it's just a piece of metal. He said, you sit down and meditate, intensively meditate. You become a Buddha. You don't just study what Buddha said. You become Buddha. Buddha simply means an, an awakened person. Mm. The, the Sanskrit verb bud originally just meant to wake up from sleep. And 
Sakyamuni, the, the prince there in northeast India, uh, was giving a lecture one day and, and somebody asked him, are you a god? Are you one of the Hindu gods? You look magnificent and your mm -hmm. eyes are shining. He said, no, I'm not a god. And he said, well, then are you an ordinary man? And he said, no, well, you can't say that either. No, mm -hmm. I'm not just an ordinary man. He said, well, what are you? And he said, I am Buddha. I am a person who has woken up. Mm. That's it. That's all Buddha means. And so Bodhidharma said, you, this is a thousand years after Sakyamuni, he made this revolution. He says, you've become Buddha through intensive meditation, simply, and a minimum of study, can if I, at all. Can I ask you, Stu, Sakyamuni is the Nepalese prince that sits under the tree after seeing it. Yes, that's, yes, that, that's yes. the name I wanted to put. Yeah. 500 probably. BC, roughly. 600, somewhere around there. Yep. Yeah. Remember reading about Hermann Hesse and things like that in the in The books, the book and, Siddhartha. Yeah, yeah, It's yeah. about that. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. Good depiction. So, the two schools, the Zen school grows slowly in southern China. It's quite revolutionary and nobody likes them because the kings are supporting the great temples of mm. the monks who are studying in return, the monks support the king. Uh, Buddhism was very much a royalty-supporting religion, mm -hmm. just like medieval Christianity. Mm -hmm. The king supported the church with gold and soldiers. The church supported the king. They told everybody, obey what the king says. He's appointed by God. Uh, the Buddhist monks said that the king or the emperor is a form of Buddha himself. You should obey him just like you would obey the Buddha mm. uh, as a god. So it was mutual support. And Bodhidharma really threw a wrench into this whole thing. And so they argued with each other. And as particularly in Korea, Zen Buddhism comes to Korea in the 800s, like 300 years after it was born in central and then south China, far away. So it, it took 300 years. The world moved a lot slower back then. Mm. During the 800s, as the Shilla kingdom was breaking down, the first golden age of Korea was ending, then Zen Buddhism comes in, gets established in nine different temples around the nation. Mm. The original nine, that's called the Gusan Sun Moon. Um, and they would argue, of course, with the scholastic monks. I'd say, you guys who are studying and spending 20 years reading and arguing, you're, you're wasting your time. And the scholastic monks would say, you guys are only meditating. You're not really doing Buddhism. Of course, you have to study what the Buddha said or it's not really Buddhism, Right. Um, you got to study and really intellectually understand the doctrines and then meditate. Uh, so they argued with each other. And again, Korea wants unity. Mm. So they kept striving to find a way to bring this together. And getting back to my point, 1200 AD, one guy did it. Great master Jino Jinul Bojo Guksa. Bojo means treasure founder, and Guksa is a national master. Yeah. And so his personal name was Jinul. So Bojo Guksa, he successfully integrated together the Zen Buddhism and the Scholastic Buddhism, making what is called Joge Buddhism, 
the national mm-hmm. Korean Buddhism. The king by 1200 exactly, the king of Korea recognized him as national master and said, "Your way is correct, and you you have my permission to effectively unify Korean Buddhism and stop all these arguments and disputes." And he did. He only lived another 10 years, but his disciples carried it forward, and we've had basically a unified Korean Buddhism ever since. We're the only country in Asia that has that. For 800 years, there's one standard Korean Buddhist doctrine and practice. The Joge order, which you can find downtown, and that's the Joge order. That's the Joge order. They yeah. are the mainstream. Yeah. They're the biggest monastic order. There is a number two order that is, uh, you know, half as big as Joge. Mm. They are the Tego order. Mm. Now, they believe everything about Buddhist doctrine, the same thing as Joge order. They have one big difference. Monks get married and have children. And you can own a temple then as family property. Mm. That's the Tego order. That's Japanese-style Buddhism. That was instituted here during colonialism. Mm. The Japanese put it in that way. Some monks wanted to continue being like that. After liberation, the many monks revolted against that and said, no, monks should be celibate. And all temples are the uh, property of the monastic order mm. um, collectively. Uh, so... They divided on that basis. It's very much like the Church of England dividing from the Catholic Church over divorce and marriage for priests and such. But really, the basic doctrine about believing in Jesus and the rituals they do is much the same. And they could someday reunite. Every Mm. once in a while you hear they talk about it. Mm. The Archbishop of Canterbury meeting with the Pope or some representatives, they do talk about it. They could if they can get past this celibacy thing. As you were talking about this, when you were talking about Bodhidharma coming along and saying that all you need to do is meditate and you need to find it and that the gold statues are worthless, I was just thinking this sounds like the Protestant Reformation centuries before the Protestant Reformation happened. Martin Luther often compared with Bodhidharma. They they were religious revolutionaries in a similar, bring it back to basics, Uh. bringing it back home, (laughs) Um, getting rid of the glitz and the corruption. Martin Luther was totally correct about the corruption of the Renaissance Catholic Church. Oh. Absolutely. The popes and uh, their secret mistresses and children and yeah, and were involved in war and politics. It, it was quite correct. And Bodhidharma, same thing. Bring it back to basics. Bring mm. it back to where Sakyamuni was really talking about doing, getting enlightened, not just studying endless academic theory. Mm. So, yeah, uh, similar. Can we, it's amazing. Can we talk about the temples a little bit? Because the temples, you said, they're not on the peaks there. And we'll come to the Sanchins if we can get into the temples. But you said the Buddhist temples, I've spent a lot of time in them with my family. Like my father-in-law, uh, they're all Buddhist. My mother-in-law is... Her ashes were scattered behind a temple, and we now believe she's laid next to a tree, and oh. we go there and uh, oh, yes. pour soju on the ground and talk to this location where her spirit now resides. And, I think that's uh, nice. Yeah. It, it, it's very nice. When my mum first saw it, my mum from England, she, she kind of looked at me and went, 
I want to be a tree. <laughs> it's, it's very different. I'm not sure if she really meant that. But going into the temples, because you have to get out of the city. And can you perhaps maybe mm. bring a temple to life to us, what they look like? Because they're not always very glitzy. They're kind of very basic. They're very dusty, I find. There's a lot of walking. I'm not sure what your perspective. but It's very natural. It's in the mountains, the countryside. And even yeah. the way that they're painted is to blend in with nature. Yeah, they don't pop as much, do they? But it's not. See, in, everything should be painted red, mm. but in China, it's fire engine red. Mm -hmm. The Koreans inherited that tradition, but they always made a darker, richer red, a burgundy, more natural red, and it kind of fits with the red pine trees mm. of uh, the Korean forests in the mountains and the, the gray roofs, the gray tile roofs Koreans use um, blended with the gray cliffs of the mountains, and they use soft pastel colors like the green that just fits in with the forest. So it's true. I, I always tell in the tourists this. If you go to China, you're going to visit a Buddhist temple in the mountains, you see it from five kilometers away. You can see the temple. It's shining bright in the sun with golden dragons over the roof and silver phoenixes and super bright red color uh, standing out, you go visit a Korean temple, mm. you can be 50 meters away from it, and you can't see it still. It's blended into the forest and the mountains. You can't see until you get right up mm. to it. It's the way it's colored. And the naturalism of the temples then is just, it's something that attracted me very much, much more. I, I always thought the Chinese stuff was too glitzy and mm. If you've ever been to Thailand and Cambodia and such places, they're just so glitzy. Mm. Um, put Disneyland to shame as such. But Koreans, so natural, so simple. Yeah. No, no golden dragons on the, the roof. No, no, no. Just keeping it simple, keeping it humble, just like in the palaces of Korea for the kings. They always had that very Taoist, naturalist sense. Can we, yeah, because I, I walk into cathedrals or great churches or mosques and they're awe-inspiring and you become sort of humbled before their grandeur and the spectacle and you just sort of stand mm. with your mouth agape at these wonderful constructions. But when you, and and you can be disappointed, I think, if you go to Korean temples or Korean mm. palaces, mm. if you're expecting a similar thing, absolutely True. you're spot on because it's just not that. It's so different. They keep it simple. Yeah. There are some very complicated paintings that can be stunning to look at. And some of the statues are very beautiful, yeah. very handsome, very great artworks. But they never made, for example, gigantic statues, never in traditional times. Japanese and Chinese did. Mm. Southeast Asians did. Gigantic Buddha statues since very early. Um, things that are you know as tall as a seven-story building just awesome but koreans never did that there is one big gold one i forget where it is i've, oh, I've been okay see modern it. times yeah, modern. i'm talking traditional okay okay pre pre-korean war yeah there's the metal statues in the jogesa temple downtown seoul are the biggest metal buddha statues they ever made oh wow 1927, and that was the biggest ever made in Korean history, mm -hmm. and they're not very big. No, if you're accustomed not. to Chinese temples, 
not big at all. You would, you would call them medium-sized at best. Why are there three? When you go to the temples, there's normally three Buddha. Is, is that right? There are various mm-hmm. kinds of triads. Yeah. Either a Buddha and two Bodhisattvas yeah. on his side yeah. that give emphasis to what kind of Buddha he is, or three Buddhas, mm-hmm. and sometimes three Buddhas with like five Bodhisattvas in between and flanking Odd numbers. them. So, well, that's a, that makes a total of eight. But yeah, odd numbers. The Koreans especially like the odd numbers. But three Buddhas, that's a Chinese thing. It's always been since the beginning. Three is a holy number in almost every religion, yeah. uh, pretty much. Uh, certainly the Christian trinities. And, and it just looks good, an altar with kind of a pyramid shape with three, you know, supreme mm. and then two flankings. It, it just naturally looks good to the human. But three Buddha, like at Jogesa, mm. and that's a very common arrangement, those are the Buddha of the past, Buddha of the present, Buddha of the future. Wow. They believe that Sakyamuni was the Buddha of our era, but there were Buddhas, several Buddhas before him mm-hmm. came to earth, manifested mm-hmm. like uh, the concept of a Hindu avatar. Mm-hmm. And, such, and like the one before, right before Sakyamuni was the Buddha of medicine, hmm. bringing medicine to humanity. Then Sakyamuni comes and brings psychology, um, psychological liberation. It's kind of a progression. Hmm. You, you think about the history of civilization, hmm. kind of makes sense. The first medicine developing and then later psychology and what we call spirituality. And they believe there will be another Buddha. Buddhists are very humble, I think, compared to most other religions. They say Sakyamuni's teachings were not good enough. They were insufficient. And you can tell because only a small part of humanity is enlightened. Today, we still have war. We still have starvation. We still hurt each other Mm. in so many ways. Mm. So Sakyamuni was inadequate. And he, he did pretty good, liberated a few million, mm. uh, but uh, inadequate, and there will be another Buddha who will bring better teachings. And this sounds familiar to Christians and Muslims. Uh, uh, he will appear, could be tomorrow, could be next month, could be a thousand years from now. Nobody knows. Mm. You can't predict. But he will appear in the world, and the world will become a garden under his teachings. He'll bring better, higher-level teachings. Everybody will understand. We'll stop hurting ourselves and stop hurting each other. Is there just one more to come in this? Or will there be a series? There might be one of that comes of... Nobody knows if he's then the final Buddha. Okay. Who could predict yeah. such things? Uh, they leave that to the cosmic considerations. There's no official doctrine. But he will come and make a peaceful world, a better world. He'll enlighten much more of humanity, if not everyone. And every Buddhists all pray that he'll appear in their country, mm-hmm. of course. He's called Matria, mm-hmm. the international name, Matria. Koreans call him Mirok, mm-hmm. Mirok Buddha, Mirok Bull. And we have many great statues of him around the country of what he's going to look like when he appears and People pray at those statues. Please come sooner. We need you. What do, what do some of these statues look like? Are, are they the traditional gold Buddhists or are they representations, manifestations of what they believe Mirok will look like? 
Yeah, well, they are. They tend to be gigantic, larger, like at least twice as big as a human being, maybe Mm. three times. They are some of the biggest Buddhist statues ever made in Korea, yes. And sometimes they're made out of bronze, the old ones, but more typical, especially around the west coast of Korea, stone Buddhas. Generally in Korea, if you got a standing Buddha, it is usually Mirok, Matria, the future one. Standing, and he looks like he has a pagoda on his head, a a kind of hat that resembles the top story of a pagoda and a Mm. fidel on it. Um, That figure, that's the future Buddha, and what he's going to look like is going to be kind of gigantic and magnificent, so everyone will pay attention to him. A Shaquille O'Neal of uh, of religious teachers, um, and especially on the west coast of Korea, the the Baekje Kingdom, mm. and later they built many of these stone statues. It became a tradition of that area. There's not so many in eastern Korea, very few really, but uh, all along the west coast, in uh, the various places, um, and the, like in the Baekje Kingdom, they did make one set of uh, bronze figures, uh, the future Buddha and two bodhisattvas that are really very tall, mm. very big standing statues. That's at Gumsansa Temple, one of our, one of the greatest in the nation, and that's left from the Baekje Kingdom. It's an amazing artworks. But yeah, the standing Buddhas in other, like you go to Theravada Buddhist countries, frequently Sakim. All they show is Sakyamuni. They don't. They don't believe in other Buddhas. Mm. They only focus on him, yeah. and they frequently show him standing. Um, most often, when you say standing, you mean standing up on two legs, like yeah, yes, rather than standing a seated lotus position or something, which I normally associate. No, that, with. that's a sitting Buddha. Yeah, they show Sakyamuni sitting in meditation. Right. Yes, but then very frequently in this, like Southeast Asia, they show a standing Sakyamuni, often with the. Uh, hand position of uh, right hand raised and left hand palm open forward. It's protection and giving, mm. uh, mudra, generous giving. So uh, that that's it's quite different tradition. Sure. Here, the standing Buddhas, almost all of them are uh, the future Buddha. What's the, maybe before we move on to some other thoughts, what's the state of Buddhism in the country today because I, I think we see a continuing secularization. We see a, a decrease in religiosity and this seems to go across a lot of different religions. Oh, yes. Is there, and when you see Korea presented to the world, and I know this is not <laughs> the real Korea always, but in Korean representations to the world, it seems like Buddhism doesn't play a large part or maybe I'm missing the parts that are mm. there. Mm. Um, so is Buddha, does Buddhism still have a role to play in modern Korea or is it sort of... Well, it would, is playing a social role. It certainly is. I would say about 20% of Koreans are Buddhists, mm-hmm. believing Buddhists. Maybe half of those are really active with it, like frequently going to temple and actually studying something and... Mm. Uh, listening to the monks talk and uh, making donations. So maybe that's 10% of the country. There's another 10% that are Buddhist but not doing anything about it. In the same way, maybe there's 30% Christians of whom around 20% are pretty, are active, really yeah. attending church and really kind of believing in it and 
trying to spread it or whatever active of politics. So like about twice as many as the Buddhists as far as really active believers. But Buddhism is there. We have three Buddhist universities, including one big one that's one of the great Korean universities, Dongguk, yes. right in the middle of Seoul here. That's run by the Jogay Order and an official Buddhist university with monk professors. and Are those students required to do what would be the equivalent of chapel or something like they have to do at Yonsei? And, uh, yeah, not so rigidly required. Okay. Recommended. Uh. If you're a student there, they in modern times, they uh. do have students who are Christians or students with no religion who are just that's the university they got into right. because they want to study some particular thing like Dongguk is a leader in archaeology and you don't have to be a believer to want to study archaeology. Mm-hmm. And, and so students are like that and I, I do believe they they don't harass the students about it. They they have the Buddhist chapel, uh, the, the services, and but you're not required. It's not like Yonsei and the mm. Protestant Christians. More like, say, the Catholic universities here, too. They don't really require attendance. They just recommend they have many students who are not Catholic. Uh, I went to Yonsei at my graduate school, and they did not require me to go to any chapel. They, they put out the invitation. Mm-hmm. Might be different for undergrads. I'm not sure, uh, Yonsei. This might be obvious to you and I, or it might not be, but for I often think I identify Buddhists by the uh, bracelets that they might wear around their wrists. And this is not foolproof, but mm-hmm. I often find that Buddhists, they will often wear, the, I don't know whether even they're called, well, these some, some round do, beads. Some do, not everybody. But right. They're prayer beads. Okay, it's, yeah. It's no, called yeah. a mokju. A mokju. Mokju, and uh, it, it's prayer beads. You, yeah. you Just like a Catholic rosary, you right. count your bows or chants. You count as you do it to make a full cycle uh, like if you have 12 beads you you do it nine times so mm. nine times 12 is 108 the, the the holy number for buddhists so yeah yeah uh, somewhere that and somewhere something around their neck mm-hmm. with that indication either a buddha figure or the the beads or something as a, a necklace or a pendant mm-hmm. much like christians do many i would say most of the korean buddhists i've seen only wear such things when they're going to the temple. They don't wear it in secular society, especially because the Christians have been dominant post-Korean War, dominant in the elite parts of society. Uh, Just anything more than 20 years ago, many Buddhists had to hide their faith. Yeah. Like a good friend of mine is a judge, and he's a Buddhist, we like to go to temples together, but for a long time, as a junior judge, younger, he had to hide it. The, the Christians were in charge. They would make the promotions. You, didn't, you had to kind of pretend to be a Christian, like, yeah, you yeah. go to church on Sunday? Yeah, yeah, I, I went to my church. Social yeah. capital and advancement, it was, especially in Korea, Christianity has that idea of advancement and you can get ahead in life yeah. and gospel of prosperity and all of this and people promote from their own organizations yeah it's very well known powerful government ministers the from their own church that they belong to whatever they'll recruit people into the ministry and promote them 
That's always been. Hmm. And they've been dominant post-Korean War. The Christians got dominance. Now, later, my friend, once society really opened up more after the year 2000, let's say, hmm. and opened up and it became diversity became more acceptable. And also my friend got to a more senior position and finally he could be open. He could just tell everybody, yeah, I'm Buddhist. And he actually he organized a discussion group, a study group with younger judges to let them come out of the closet, shall we say, and let them be Buddhists within the judiciary and let that's everybody nice. know it's okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's very nice. I might put you on the spot here, but I'm not sure. I have these in my wallet that are given to me by my family. Oh. Do you know anything about these? They're, they're, they're good luck charms. I'm just not sure if... And my family do come well, from... Koreans call this a bujok. Okay. That may, bujok. Okay. This yeah. is more shamanistic, but somewhat Buddhist, and this is entirely Buddhist. This yeah. is the bodhisattva of compassion mm. on this side and dragons with a mandala on this side specifically Buddhist, yeah, you're simply supposed to carry this for good luck, good fortune. Yeah, yeah. And, and so I do, and I don't know. They give it to me, and they say, put this in your wallet, and I say, okay, I will. And, There's all uh, kinds of Western traditions that are just the same. Yeah, Christians yeah. wearing that cross around their neck, yeah. or they wore uh, you know, a, a, a photo, a, a painting of a saint in their pocket, you know, yeah. the little card of a saint. The they fish on the this. back of their car. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, whatever, whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's good luck. I mean, like even in medieval times, you'd get this drawing of a saint on a small card. And That's right. You keep it in your pocket or your purse uh, for good luck. Uh, it's an old, I think virtually every religion has good luck charms, shall we say. And uh, part of the, some of the bujoks are real shamanism. There's a real shamanic style. And you can meet masters who make those and give you one. I recently got one myself and I put it up on the door of my apartment room. <laughs> shamanism in Korea predates Buddhism? Oh, very you, much. Yeah. Well, shamanism predates everything. <laughs> I mean, Talking 20,000 years ago, 30,000, the, the very first kind of human spirituality, when mm. people started painting in caves and making little figurines, that's shamanism, the early spirit worship. Then that evolved in some places into paganism, mm -hmm. a more organized system like the ancient Greeks had, the ancient Romans, a system of gods and the way that they interact with each other that's more systematic and a, a set of priests in temples who mm -hmm. take the cash donations and do ceremonies, bless you, and get rid of your devils or whatever, uh, paganism. And those developed into what we call religion, uh, the, the mm. Judaism and Hinduism being the first. And that developed Hinduism branching off to Buddhism and Judaism giving us Christianity and Islam. Mm -hmm. Later, uh, in what we call organized religions, the formal religions. Uh, but it all comes from shamanism. That's uh, the most ancient. And Koreans came from Siberia, you know. They, yeah. We think they came from about the, the Lake Baikal, the biggest freshwater lake in the world, in Siberia. They were around there, and about 5,000 years ago, they got horses came in from Central Asia, mm. and getting on those horses, they started moving south. 
because it was warmer to the south. You follow the sun yeah. from Siberia. It makes sense. And they came down into what is now Manchuria, wow. Mongolia, and the Korean Peninsula and across to Japan. They're all cousins. Mm-hmm. The Mongol- Mongolians, the Manchurians, the Koreans, the Japanese, they're all cousins. And as usual, within any family, they hate each other. <laughs> family fighting is the worst kind of fighting. Yeah. It's a very deep truth in that, I, yeah. I feel. You know. Unfortunately, there is. Yeah. Uh, sometimes uh, it's easier to unite to hate the faraway foreigners, but... Uh, the close by people, like the French and the Germans, were not originally very different. Mm-hmm. Charlemagne mm-hmm. had them under one kingdom. Why did they become such rivals? Mm. We, we draw lines. If we go back to this shamanism, shamanism seems to be a bit of a dirty word today, Like, mm. which is surprising to me because if it is the original, if it is the heritage, you would think that it would be a little bit perhaps more revered or some kind of heritage associated with it but Mm. i think it might be affected by modern stories and dramas in the glory which was a big k K drama about bullying Mm. the bad guys went to shamans and it was seen as a sign of their corruption or their infidelity there was all talks about the the current president president yoon with the shamanist advisor yeah Yeah. and um but it what i'm saying is it seems to be very negatively perceived at the moment. So perhaps Not entirely. Be- Go on. Not entirely. Um, yeah. Well, during the 20th century, I mean, first of all, the Japanese, with modernization, they put down the shamanism and they told people this is primitive superstition, shouldn't do this anymore. Modern education, the Japanese set up the first, you know, primary schools and then high schools and got Koreans into, a few Koreans into colleges and modern education for a modern economy Mm. um, imposed Japanese Shinto, which is a highly organized kind of shamanism. The Mm -hmm. original Japanese shamanism became Shinto, but highly organized an actual kind of religion. In China, the village shamanism got organized and had some philosophy added to it and some yoga practices, it became Taoism, an official religion rivaling Buddhism. It was originally from Chinese shamanism. But in Korea, it never got organized, Mm. never became an organized religious force. It remains today and too much unorganized to be considered a religion. Mm. All right. So the Japanese were against it. And then the Republic of Korea, certainly the first president, a serious Protestant Christian, Mm. and the subsequent military dictatorships, they wanted to get rid of all the old superstition, all the old thinking, including even Confucianism, that was holding Korea back and institute modern thinking. Mm. And the communists of North Korea, even much more so, they really wiped out all traditional culture, all spirituality. And the only thing remaining is communist ideology and worshiping, the only religion is worshiping the leader. Mm. Um, They went to great extremes. They killed the shamans or put them in work camps till they died. Many of the North Korean Christian ministers, Buddhist monks, and shamans came to the South Mm. if they could escape. And that really changed South Korean culture in the 1940s to 50s. 
really changed, having all these northerners suddenly come in with different styles, including the they founded some of the biggest Christian churches today. The mega churches were by North Korean refugees. Mm. Anyway, um, modernization was an enemy of shamanism. They went to all the vi the villages, the the Semaul Undong, mm. new village movement to modernize villages with tin roofs instead of straw roofs, electricity, water, clean water reservoir, irrigation. Um, and putting in a medical clinic and an elementary school, mm. modernizing the village. And they told the villagers to stop doing the ceremonies, the rituals, tear down your mountain spirit shrine, throw those old paintings, throw them in the garbage pile, burn them mm. in a bonfire, get rid of all that stuff so we can have modern thinking. By the time I got here in the 1980s, so I'm an English teacher. Right? I was just a wandering backpack traveler, and I'm teaching English down on Zhongro at the, the very original Haguans, mm -hmm. the first one, first language schools that started. And my students co were college students and adults. I never taught kids. But my students then were telling me, oh, we don't do that anymore. Since I was interested in Native American shamanism, and I saw in a few books that Korea had shamanism, but they told me, oh, we don't do that anymore. My grandma did that in the village, but no, today we are modern, educated people, sophisticated people. And I believed them yeah. at first because it would be very rude to come to some country and have people tell you, the natives tell you about their own country. And if you don't believe them, that would be rude. Yeah. So I, I did believe, but I was a mountain hiker, and I would go out hiking on the wee end, and I kept finding shaman shrines and even actual shaman performances, rituals going on. And I would whip out my camera, mm. snapping photos, very excited, thinking, I'm seeing the end of it. Mm. This, this must be the last, the very last of Korean shamanism. It's disappearing. I'm getting photos of it. Wow. Nobody else is, uh, this is uh, great for the future. These will be precious. But then we like get into the 1990s, I keep finding them. Mm. And I find newly built shrines. Somebody put up $100,000 and built a new mountain spirit shrine mm. or shamanic shrine. And I was like, at first really I was puzzled. Why did they do that? Don't they know this is dying? Don't they know that Koreans don't believe in this anymore? Why would somebody spend the money to uh, such an elaborate brand new shrine with big paintings? But finally, by the end of the 90s, I was finally realizing, wait a minute, this isn't dying. This is flourishing. I was finding new, bigger shrines than had ever been built in old Korea, bigger paintings much bigger paintings than traditional Korea had ever built, up to, you know, three meters across or more. Finally, by the year 2002, I stumbled across, in a rather secret location, the biggest mountain spirit shrine ever built in Korean history, a giant building as big as any Buddhist main hall, and inside was a painting six meters across. Wow. Six meters wide, four meters tall, mm -hmm. the biggest shamanic painting ever made in Korea. And it was all brand new. It had just been built at the cost of around like a million dollars. 
Uh, okay, or a million pounds. What, what was the painting of? Are you uh, to... The mountain spirit. Okay. The San Xin, yeah. the mountain spirit, lord of the mountains. He's the most important spirit of Korean shamanism, uh, Korean culture in general, because Korea is all mountains. Siberian shamanism had mountain spirits, but there's not that many mountains out there. Yeah. Uh, they, and they're not so important. Uh, the, the wild animal spirits and the tree spirits, forest spirits, much more important to the Siberians. But when they got down here, mm. finding a peninsula covered in mountains and very beautiful, prominent mountains, Sanshin, Mountain spirit became yeah. number one. So finding this and finding it's been a million dollars building this, and it's really floored me. Mm. Somebody, one of the greatest Buddhist monks of the nation, a top-level enlightened master, 80 years old, had collected the donations from believers of a, like a million dollars and built this fantastic building and shrine. You can see it on my website photos of when I discovered this. And that, that really floored me to just to realize, wait a minute, this is flourishing, flourishing as much as any other religion. Uh, this is really happening. People really believe, people don't spend that kind of money if they don't believe it. Yeah. Is, stupid question time, Sanshin and shamanism, same thing, similar? Well, because uh, I've got three words in my head, Buddhism, and you said this thing was collected. So Buddhism, we've explained, and I've got some of the principles from you. And then we've been talking about shamanism, but we've jumped to Sanshin, mountain spirits. So these three things, are they overlapping? Are they the same thing? Are they different? No, no, no. Yeah, but okay. shamanism believes in many different spirits. Shaman, the basis of shamanism, spirits are everywhere. Mm -hmm. Rocks have spirits, just very cold, slow spirits. <laughs> Trees and plants have somewhat faster moving spirits, more energetic, and animals obviously have a warm and active spirit within them. Mountains have spirits, but uh, you know, spirits that exist over millions of years and slowly change, a mountain. So, uh, but everything has a spirit. And everything happens because of spirits. That's shaman, shamanistic belief. If you get sick and then you cure your sickness and you get well, both of those are from spirits, a disease spirit and then a health-giving spirit. And uh, if you have bad luck or good luck in any way during the day mm. or in your life, you're flourishing and get promoted and get rich or you fail and become poor and become an alcoholic, it's because of spirits. Mm -hmm. They do that. And so shamans are people who communicate with the spirits, find out what they want, find out what they, uh, what they require, uh, find out how to get bad spirits away from a person or a family or a village and how to bring good spirits into their life mm -hmm. to help them and get benefits. And so people go to shamans because they feel that their life is going wrong. Something's wrong with their psychology, what we would call depression or anxiety or some such, or they're, they're having bad luck. They can't get a promotion, can't find a job, kid can't pass the exams mm. at school, husband's drinking too much outside, whatever. There's something wrong within the family. They go to a shaman who will diagnose the entire position. Shamanism in this way is actually just an ancient, primitive form of psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. 
Psychotherapy. Yeah. They help people feel better, either individuals or families or entire villages. They reconcile problems. Let's say in a village, different families hate each other, got a big rivalry going over, you know, the, the deals have gone bad in the past and they, they hate each other. A shaman will have a big ritual for three days and three nights and bring them together and get uh, contact all the ancestor spirits who will tell them what they're doing wrong and believing wrong and how they should reconcile. And by the end of three days and three nights, everybody's hugging each other and crying and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have been acting that way. Or within a family, very much mm. that happening, reconciling family members, curing depression and anxiety and such getting people to have a positive attitude towards the future. That's what shamans do at their best. Mm. They are psychotherapists, and they work that way today. I know shamans who they consider themselves healers. And in the West, we have many, you know, like spiritual healers, right, mm. who try help people who have serious illnesses or have psychological illnesses with various spiritual methods, often rooted in some tradition, whether... Latin, you know, American, Mexican, or ancient uh, uh, European witchcraft and mm -hmm. paganism, whatever, the, these new movements. It's psychotherapy. Yeah. They make you have a better life and get you oriented and back in harmony with nature and feeling good about yourself and about life. That's what they do. So then, um, they believe in spirits. Getting yeah. back to that, many spirits, even they say 10,000 spirits. They're all around, they're everywhere. Shamans are just people who can see them and communicate with them. Uh, they're religiously sensitive people, you might say. Yeah, just like those same kind of people in the West, they become, they tend to become Christian priests, Jewish rabbis, or Muslim imams, or whatever, clerics, yeah. as we say. Clary, they're, they're religiously sensitive people. They sense more about God than ordinary people do, and they're drawn into that as a profession mm. if they're not in it for the money or the power or the whatever. But um, Buddhists are just the same, and uh, shamans, uh, originally, they're, they're just people in the village who could see the spirits and talk to them, especially they became the village shaman, mm. and sometimes they were the leader of the village if they had that kind of leadership ability, or they served the leader either way. It's a bit related to what we call schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. You start hearing voices. You see things that other people don't see. You see persons or animals that are not there. You see the spirits and mm -hmm. you talk to them. If somebody's just doing this out on the sidewalk, we say, that's a crazy person. Mm -hmm. Should be in a hospital. But if it's done in an organized way, in a ritual that actually helps people by getting those communications, then, then we call it shamanism. I've always loved the idea that if we talk to God, it's normal, but if God talks to us, we're crazy. Yeah, 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 There's yeah, that yeah, kind yeah. of, why, why does it work like that? I had exactly. this idea of, I, I love the way sometimes you bring it back to explaining it through families. You said that with China, Japan, Korea, Mongolia, that 
the family hatred is like that and the way you say that shamans can bring families or people together now in some of my misinformed completely uneducated ideas of shamans previously i thought they were people that you smoked pipes with and they took you on a trip and then you found stuff here it, it seems to be more performative there's a ritual yes. that, that can you perhaps talk about the actual practices so you've spoken about what they do and their job and, and the benefits that good shamans can have on communities, it's ritualistic here in, in some ways, isn't it? Well, yes. It's a ceremony. Now, something distinctive about Korea, they never had drugs, okay. psychotropic drugs, they don't like have you are mentioning. In, in Mexico, they had the mushrooms, and in Latin America, South America, the, the cocaine and the Arish, I can't pronounce it. Arishstra, mm -hmm. so, something, uh, something you can snort into your nose and it will make you have visions. In Hinduism, was originally based on soma mushrooms, mm -hmm. which, uh, and then in Indonesia, they still use the magic mushrooms on Bali Island uh, uh, for, for their Hindu art and Hindu understanding. I've experienced that. You mm. eat those mushrooms and then. You see the stone statue of the monkey god, and it dances in front of you. The statue actually dances. You sit there and watch it, and mm -hmm. wow. Um, it kind of awakens you to the spiritual world. You can see them for a few hours. Mushrooms. Now, many cultures had something like that yeah. that gave people psychedelic experiences, we might say, psychotropic experiences, and the shamanism became based on that. Even though the Romans and Greeks had certain substances, this nothing like that in Korea. Just by natural coincidence, no such thing ever grew. Um, all they had was alcohol. Mm -hmm. Now, some people can use alcohol to get to a shamanic state, and some shamans at the beginning of their ritual take some heavy slugs of soju to get them to the space. Later, tobacco came in, and some of them started using tobacco to, that stimulation would help them get there. But generally, it's not a drug thing. It makes yeah. it different from many other types of shamanism in the world. Um, it, r drumming and dancing mm. is much more of the key. And everybody in the whole world knows when you get heavy, good drumming and you start moving your hips and you swear out and you do this for a while, you get into a bit of a trance, yeah. which all the young people in Hongdae Ipgu, that's what they're into, right, with their glow sticks. Mm -hmm. Six mm -hmm. hours mm -hmm. of ritual movement. Uh, you're in kind of a trance and yeah. you get to, hopefully, at least, you get to a very happy place. and Ecstasy. Yes. And there are certain drugs that can help that along. And a, a few shots of alcohol are very helpful to get you into that mood. And me as a rock and roller teenager, I mean, definitely that's where it was at. You mm. Have a flask of whiskey and attend the Rolling Stones concert and you <laughs> achieve ecstasy. All right. Now... With Korean shamanism, yeah, the primary thing is drumming and then dancing to the drumming, and you get into your spiritual space that way. You gain access. You start seeing your primary spirits, and you start seeing the ancestor spirits of your clients or whatever. And the, so there are so many different kinds of spirits, and the, the mountain spirit, mm. like I said, in Korea became primary 
the Sanjin, because Korea is covered in dramatic, powerful mountains, much more than Siberia. Mm. So it became number one. But then there are many number two, number three spirits, like the seven stars of the Big Dipper, yeah. another constellation, the sun and the moon itself, uh, you know, as, as heavenly spirits. And then the idea of earth spirits, hell spirits, tree spirits, animal spirits. In Korea, the tiger was the, the king of all wild animals. So tiger spirits became associated with the Sanjin, with the mountain spirit, the the alter ego or the messenger of the mountain spirit was the tiger. And so that's very much used by shamans, tiger imagery, but other animals. Is the Sanshin depicted as a male person, sometimes looking like Tangun? Am I thinking of Tangun when I see the man sat there in the red and the tiger next to him? He's a king. It's a man and yeah. it's a king wearing yeah. a kingly robes. Now, this is a whole dramatic thing in itself. Mm. Uh, well, first of all, Tangun is connected with Sanshin okay. in that at the end of the Tangun myth, they say that he ruled as the first king of the first Korean kingdom for 1900 years. But then China invaded mm. under Kija, mm. and the myth lists him is an actual historical figure from about uh, 1000 BC or 900. Um, when he invaded Korea and Chinese civilization then started coming in, Iron Age civilization, mm. displacing the Bronze Age shamanism, they settled in the valleys. And it said, the myth finishes by saying Sanshin, uh, no, Dangun, mm. the first king, retreated to the mountains and became a Sanshin. Became a mountain spirit up in the mountains, meaning that the original Korean culture still is up there in the mountains, kind of hiding and reclusive, while down in the valley, it became Iron Age Chinese culture, Gijia took over. Yeah. Later, Japanese culture, later, the Americans. Today, very much American culture, the Starbucks and everything, the clothing that they wear, it's all in the valleys in the low areas, the cities. But up in the mountains, Sanjin is still there. And that's, you can see all of the Sanjin as kind of a representation of Dangun. Mm -hmm. They all kind of contain the Dangun idea. Or you can see like all the Sanjin are children of Dangun, kind of, mm. put it that way. Mm. Um, and many of the mountains of Korea are female. They are, they have a female spirit all the shamans agree, the religious people at those mountains agree that the, this mountain is female in spirit, especially in the western side of Korea. The western side is predominantly female mountains and the eastern side predominantly male mountains. They tend to be larger, sharper, rockier, rougher mountains. The male the ones? Yeah. Yes, no, that's okay. male. and. They're more rounded and gentle mountains of the West, but not always like that. Like Garyongsan is a very rough, spiky mountain, and it's very female. It's one of the primary female mountains, so it doesn't always go like that. But uh, that division happened. But in the traditional times, all the paintings, every mm -hmm. single one, um, in the formal Confucian shrines or Buddhist temples, of the mountain spirit were made male just mm. because of the patriarchy 
patriarchalism. It had to be a king. Some shamans were already using female mountain spirit paintings, even in late Joseon dynasty. We do know that. And in the 20th century, Mm. as Korean women have staged a great comeback, you know very well this whole story, but... 1880 or so, Korean women had zero human rights, nothing at all. It was like rural Afghanistan right now. In the Jangot, covered. Yeah, Yeah. all of Afghanistan. Uh, Women just had zero rights. Uh, They were just not even human beings. Uh, But during the 20th century, the end of the 1800s through the 20th century, a dramatic comeback, step-by-step, education, choice society and then late 20th century they can get jobs real jobs career jobs and even start by 2000 they could become some kind of executive and president even even a president we had a woman president here the first female leader in 1270 years you understand 12 uh, or 13. I, I, I'm just... It Queen was, uh, Sundok. Sundok and... Uh, 640. So how does that work? Uh, 640, 643 to 2023. 20, there were three in the Shilla. There was like Sundok, four, Jindok, and Jinsong, I believe. It's like 1380 yeah. years. Yeah. Jinsong doesn't really count. Okay. She didn't really have power. She was formally the queen of Korea, but her male relatives really ran everything behind the scenes. It was total corruption. I was proud of myself for remembering yeah, that. You shot me you're down. You're good <laughs> to remember that name. It uh, doesn't kind of really count as a real ruler. Sunduk and Jinduk really ruled the nation, and that was 1,370 years ago. And then we had a woman president. And she totally failed. <laughs> so now Korean feminists are saying, oh, it'll be another 1,300 years before they let us try this again. Crap. Anyway, um, 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 they painted male Sanjin figures because of the patriarchy, even mm. at the very female mountains. Mm. That's what the paintings were. And many still are today. But just starting 30 years ago that I have been witnessing and chronicling and recording the emergence of female mountain spirit icons. First of all, paintings. I remember the first ones that appeared, and that was kind of shocking. How were they depicted? As describe it? Queenly, as as not so old, interestingly, out of some kind of... the, The men... The male Sanchin are all old grandfathers with either white or gray beard, uh-huh. long beard, long eyebrows, uh, really an, an old ancient man as the king of the mountain. The women are shown as middle-aged with still black hair, wow. generally uh, gray hair at worst. Gray hair. Are bad. I, there was one statue at, at Gerongsan I just photographed that it had white hair, actually pure white, but that's new. Mm-hmm. That's rare. But uh, they're doing that. And then just recently, within 10 years, they've started making female Sanjin statues to put in front of those paintings. Companies are actually producing those out of it's plastic nice. or uh, how, how they do it. And people are carving stone statues of female Sanjin. So this is all very new. Um, and as the status of Korean women has risen, Ever since I've been here, it changed dramatically. Then uh, the 
mountain spirits, more and more of them are depicted as female at the female mountains, and that's dramatic to watch. It's it's wonderful to hear that story, and I, I will come to this idea perhaps in a minute about the gods that we have represent parts of our society and those changes over time and now how we have these female sanctions sure. represents the changes in Korean society. I often associate shamanism with women, perhaps incorrectly, because I'm not as nowhere near as well versed as you. But whereas when I think of Buddhist monks, and in my experience, I've seen a lot of Buddhist monks here, predominantly men. That's not a good thing or a bad thing, but it's just in my observations. No. When I think of shamans in Korea, I often think of a, uh, the word has suddenly escaped me, mudang. Mudang. Yeah, yeah I was thinking of mudang, which I think is too, um, mudang and these kind of bangsang, bangsang ajamas or these mediums that will communicate yes, with yes, spirits. Yes. But uh, I associate shamanism with women. Is that right. incorrect? There are some very prominent shamans who are men. They, they, they tend to be called baksu. Uh, mm -hmm. A term for a male shaman. Mm -hmm. um, there are now. Well, you have to understand what happened. That when shamanism dominated Korea two thousand years ago, when mm. the leaders of the tribes were shamans, mm. and the first kings kind of acted like shamans, um, then they were men. They were prominent of society and such, and later. Under the medieval Koreans, when it's very, very Buddhist and most of the monks are male, although there was a strong contingent of female monks, and mm. today about a quarter of all the monks are female monks, uh, maybe more than a quarter, mm. they're increasing. They're doing better progressively. Uh, they, they were, but then more the shamans who did remain and were thought of as less important, uh, more women became shamans practicing. And by the time you get to Joseon Dynasty, where they put shamans at the very bottom of the social order, together with Buddhist monks and such, and really looked down upon them, um, a lot of them became women there at the bottom of society. Yeah. It was what, now, Korea was extremely patriarchal from the 1600s through the 1800s, about 300 years. As you say, women had no human rights. Often, home life could be intolerable. Mm -hmm. Your mother-in-law could be horribly oppressive, and your husband and even your sons and husband's relatives uh, treat you terribly, treat you like a slave. Mm -hmm. One of the only ways to escape was to become a shaman. Mm -hmm. Leave the, If you leave the house, you might just starve. Nobody would accept you, and uh, you might be able to become a prostitute if you were attractive enough. But there's not much of a way to make a living or go somewhere, especially for a noble lady who mm. didn't have common skills, let's say. Um, but you could, and many were driven to do so because of the horribly oppressive conditions. Mm. We're talking psychological illness. Anxiety and depression and such, a very easy to understand. Yeah, they were, many women were quite disturbed and end up running away from home. And yeah, they, they go to a shaman shrine and find a shaman who will take them in as, as become their godmother and take them in and train them. And they cure their own psychology by becoming a shaman, communicating with the spirits. They first of all cure themselves, and then they have a way to make a living 
It's low class in society, but it's a position in society. Very disgraceful for a noble family to have their daughter run off Mm -hmm. to become a shaman. They would often just, they would just tell the neighbors she died. She died. We had a quiet funeral. Oh, it's too bad. There was Mm -hmm. some virus, whatever. Um, She's gone. And... It would be like that, and they become anonymous people with a whole new life. The same way people became Buddhist monks for the same reason. They kept escaping from the cities, go to the mountains, become a monk. Also orphan, orphan boys and girls ended Mm -hmm. up becoming either Buddhist monks or shamans. They would be adopted by the, the elder religious people and raised that way. So... It became something of the oppressed shamanism performed by the oppressed people, who a lot of whom were women. Mm. It became a, one of the ways for women to escape. Mm. Now, also, women kind of do the religion in Korea. Under Neo-Confucianism for 500 years, the men were educated mm. and did rational things in this world. They're like a, you might call them scientific atheists, basically. They're very rational, this world, only a, f- only a few exceptions like ancestor ceremonies or, mm-hmm. or a very vague belief in a lord of heaven, but uh, not seriously. And the women were uneducated, mm-hmm. and they continued quietly to practice shamanism and to visit shamans. And, of course, they associated well with other women. They could tell their troubles. and They'd go out at night, often sneak out of the city at night, go to the nearby mountains to either a Buddhist temple or a shaman shrine mm-hmm. and find somebody who would listen to their problems, talk to them, and then do some ritual to make the, either a Buddhist ritual or a shamanic ritual make them feel better. For 500 years, while the Buddhists were exiled in the mountains then, they became pretty familiar with the shamans who were in the same situation. And many shamans operated in Buddhist temples, and many Buddhist monks started doing a little shamanism. They did mix. Mm -hmm. Then when you get to the modern era, where Buddhism is fully legalized— but shamanism is still illegal, and it is still is illegal in most of Korea. It's actually illegal. You cannot register as a shaman shrine. There's no profes- official profession to pay taxes as a shaman in most of the country. It's only been legalized in five places that I know about, counties or one province, Jeju Island, uh, legalized Jeju shamanism, of course. But then on mainland Korea, four counties that I know of legalized it, where you can actually register a piece of property as a shaman shrine. Now, the rest of the country, you can't. So you have to register as a Buddhist temple. Uh, it's pretty much your only choice. What's the justification for not being able to do it? Is it, is it just a hole in the books? Is a hole Koreans, in the, the modern Korean government, starting with Japanese colonialism, yeah. then to the modern Korea, never created a category in the real estate law hmm. for shaman shrine. Simply, there is no category. You can be a Christian church, a Buddhist temple, an Islamic mosque. You can be a residence, an office, a factory, a farm. Every piece of land has hmm. to be 
something. It must be registered as something so that you can pay taxes on that basis. Mm. But there's no category of shaman shrine. It doesn't exist. Is there a move to get it registered or okay, would well, that kind of destroy some of the well, mystique let, of it? Let me explain. Yes. Oh, so through the 20th century, shamans had to pretend to be Buddhist monks. When I came here in the 80s, that was very serious. It's the only way to avoid harassment by the police and the tax collectors. Uh, they actually had a Buddhist name, like a Buddhist hermitage you know, in the front. And inside, there's a big Buddha statue on the altar. But then the shaman gods would be off on the side and such. But Buddha statue and some bodhisattvas on the main altar. And the shamans themselves, even the women, would shave their head bald and wear gray-colored robes or brown robes. They have photos of this. Uh, they would wear Buddhist robes. They had to. They were pretending to be a Buddhist temple and to be Buddhist, but everybody knew it was actually shamanism, and the customers who came there for that I mean, came for that reason. And they would do that. And some of them really adopt, some of them actually studied Buddhism and went that direction and became more of a Buddhist shaman, you might say. Mm. And in some of the Buddhist temples, some of the monks who were more mystical-minded monks, they practiced shamanism. There's one great temple near Jirisan I found had a perfect combination. It was run by a husband-wife team, mm. rather a nice medium-sized temple, quite lovely. The husband is a Buddhist monk. The wife is a mudang a shaman, and they just work together. People come to the temple, and it's like, well, what do you need? It's what what kind of problem share. do you have? What, yeah. can you, what do you need? And either the husband would do a ceremony for them or the wife would do a shamanic ritual for them, uh, depending on the customer and what their problem is or, or just their desire, and uh, they work together as a team. Now, because of this... Korean Christians used this as a weapon. Korean Protestant Christians, who are extremely intolerant, as you may know, they want both Buddhism and shamanism gone in Korea. They would like them eradicated, consigned to the museums only. They, they want Korea to be 100% Christian. If, and then they say, when that happens, then Jesus will return to Korea. Korean and be Jesus. A Korean. Yes, it'd be Korean Jesus um, returning when the country is 100% Christian. So they're working towards that goal. Now, they would point all this out and they would say, you see, Buddhism and shamanism are the same thing, really. It's just blended together. It's devil worship. It's all just devil worship, Buddhism and shamanism together. So by the 1980s, the greatest Buddhist Zen master, the one who became supreme patriarch, of the nation. That's an official office of the Joge Order of Korean Buddhism, mm. the top religious monk. They have two different top jobs. There's a president of Korean Buddhism who does all the dirty work, money, politics, mm. administration, all that. And there's a supreme patriarch who leads the monks to enlightenment and never thinks and worries about money or politics or any such thing. Never even comes to Seoul. Stays in the mountain. Now, the Supreme Patriarch of the 1980s, the great Master Songjul, got really sick and tired of this, of, of the Christians using this as a weapon against them. So he ordered all the temples to purify, mm -hmm. kick out the shamanism, and report any temple, small temple in your area that's actually a shaman tribe, report them to the authorities. 
uh, get rid and kick out the mountain spirit shrines that were in temples and the seven star shrines and such, kick them out, uh, to burn the paintings. He assembled all the monks in the courtyard of the great Hainza temple. And uh, what was it, in ni- 1985, and took out the mountain spirit paintings and the, the, the seven star paintings and put them on a bonfire burned them in front of all the in front of all his disciple monks who were quite shocked but he said you must do this in every temple of the nation a purify and cleansing thing to become pure buddhism in his mind hmm. now i was against this because these characteristics this is what makes korean buddhism really korean all the taoist and the shamanic aspects blended hmm. in is what makes really the character of Korean Buddhism. He was trying to make a pure kind of international standard Buddhism, which I don't think exists. There is no pure standard international Buddhism. There's Thai Buddhism, there's Japanese Buddhism, there's modern American or British Buddhism Mm -hmm. being practiced, but it always has national characteristics according to... French Buddhists drink wine and German Buddhists drink beer and it goes like that. Yeah. So uh, you cannot, I think that's impossible. So he did this though. The, the, he died in 1993. His funeral was a big national event. Um, and afterwards, the mountain spirit shrine started reappearing in the temples. He lost. Mm. That uh, his disciples continued this militancy, like at Haines on some of the great temples, but many temples all around. And even at Haines, I visited later some hermitages, like five years later, and I found an antique mountain spirit painting up on, on the altar in the hermitage. And I'd ask Sung, "How is this possible?" Mm. And he says, "We just hid it <laughs> when, when Master Sungjil obeyed his orders. We just hid it behind the wall." inside behind the altar it was just hiding and after he died we waited a couple of years and we took it back out so i wrote this in my book my 1999 book about the mountain spirits i said the mountain spirit is stronger than master songchul <laughs> it had the victory ultimately yeah. he couldn't wipe that out the monk in the monks of hainza his core disciples declared me persona non grata at the, that temple and other major temples. This became a problem when I worked for the government and I was guiding groups of ambassadors to the temples and such. And they were like, a Mason, he's not welcome here. He insulted mm. Master Songjil. Hey, it was not an insult. It was just truth. The Sanjin is that strong. Nobody could stop it. So they... Mountain spirits are back in the temples. I'd say 90% of Korean temples have such an altar, painting, shrine, something. And uh, it continues as a characteristic of Korean Buddhism. And some of the other shaman figures that you can find integrated into a Buddhist temple. Because uh, Buddhist temples have a mountain spirit shrine because he's the landlord. They're in the mountains. It's his mountain. Mm. He was there long before Buddha was ever born. Mm. They know that. They ask, they chant and pray to the mountain spirit every day, asking permission to live there. Mm. They make offerings, burn incense Mm. as a kind of paying the rent. 
daily paying the rent. And they ask for protection in exchange, protection from nature. That they, they say, we're operating Buddhism here. It's a good religion for human beings. It helps humans. We ask your permission to stay here. We will protect all the nature around the temple. We'll defend it. Nobody can cut the trees. Nobody can kill the animals. Mm. We will defend nature on this mountain slope. In exchange, give us health. Give us good health. And let us prosper in this place and spread our religion. It's a deal. Humans living in harmony with nature, we get health. That's a, even the royalty of Korea acknowledged this, that, that principle, very strongly. So um, it's an integrated part. And now in, it's very dramatic, in four different counties mm. that I keep visiting, shamanism has been legalized somewhere just in the past 15 years. And it's very dramatic. They tear down that outer sign by the highway. They put up a new sign saying, mm. mountain worship shrine right here. Korean shamanism, prayer, come here to pray to the spirits. And the shamans dress in shamanic clothing and they got all their hair and some of them dye their hair, becoming quite flamboyant. They And the Buddha statue is gone or it's pushed over way on the side. The mountain spirit is front and center wow. or some other shaman deity, but most commonly the mountain spirit. Dangun is there, mm. the first Korean, and the, the dragon king. They're right there on the altars and Buddha is an afterthought. Some still retain it, some don't. There are brand new shaman shrines being built, brand new with new kinds of architecture, new kinds of artwork. I'm watching it in real time, just flourishing. Wow. New stuff appearing. And I keep going down there photographing. I post my photos on my website and mm -hmm. Facebook, and I just gave a lecture to the Royal Asiatic Society that's available on video about the new stuff that I'm finding. It is very much, to my mind, mm. like gay people in the West mm. during my lifetime, what happened, uh, coming out of the closet. When I was a young boy, gays were top secret. Mm -hmm. Of course, it was hidden. Gay bars were hidden. Nobody talked about it. Everybody just made jokes or persecuted any boy who seemed femme. Uh, but... but you know, the gay liberation movement of the late 70s and then the 1980s and such. And you start with pride parades and they're out of the closet. And we're here. We're queer. Get used to it. Mm -hmm. um, and Korean shamans in those areas. It's very much like that. We're here. It's Korean shamanism. We are a shaman. And mm. come on in. And they've become much friendlier, much more welcome. They used to be very suspicious of outsiders because they were illegal. Yeah. They wonder, especially an American with a camera, they thought I was reporting to the authorities that I must be some kind of Christian who was there to, you know, to, to rat them out to the police or something. Uh, very suspicious and unwelcoming. Today, in those places, usually it's like, welcome, come in, mm. see my shrine, take my photo, photograph my shrine, put it, please put it on the internet. I want to be famous shaman. I saw an old, an old woman with pinker hair. Pink was that yeah, that was on in your one website? Of my photos, yeah, yeah, that's right. Bright pink hair. <laughs> there was the flamboyance. Flamboyance, yeah. really pretty wild clothing. Also, they're just being themselves. Love it. These are not the conventional standard 
conformist Koreans. Where are these four, in what part of the country are these four counties? So you, maybe even if you don't know each The specific, ones I know of yeah, yeah, yeah. are... Whereabouts are they? Closest to Seoul is Gongju. Okay. Gongju City, yeah. which includes the western slope of Gerongsan. Gerongsan is surrounded with a hundred shaman shrines, but over on the eastern slope, uh, mm. which is Daejeon City, they're still illegal, but mm. they have to be Buddhist. But on the western slope within Gongju City, it's legal, and that's where I'm finding and doing, I'm leading tours out there to people. Another one, Tebek City. Okay. With the great mountain Tebeksan, yeah, yeah. one of the holiest shamanic mountains of the nation, one of the number one top holy mountain, and they've legalized it there. And I was just there 10 days ago uh, doing a private trip, just seeing the new shrines that are being built, the new artworks. It's amazing. Wow, wow. I'll give another RAS presentation about that. The other two are counties around Jirisan, which is one of the strongest, holiest, sacred mountains. Uh, Gure County and Sanchong County mm. have both legalized shamanism and the, the new new shrines are appearing. If I, So if I go to these, <coughs> I, I would be able to enter and say hello and just like I would yeah. a temple or something like most that. Most foreigners have no idea how to find such places. Oh. Um, and most Koreans are scared too, <laughs> but uh, frightened of it. But, uh, yeah, you could. I mean, you can just drive your car around and right. look for the sign, if you can read Korean, the yeah. sign that says Mountain Worship Kido, meaning prayer, yeah. shrine of this way with an arrow. And you just follow the arrow and find the shrine. And I, I lead tours, and we just walk into shrines, and we never know what's going to happen. Mm. Sometimes they, they block us and deny us and say, no, get out of here. Like we're having a private ritual, hmm. private clients, and we don't want visitors, especially foreigners. Oh, my God. But many of them are remarkably welcoming. In fact, they want us to stay and have some tea. And many times now, if they're having a ritual, hmm. they'll invite us in. They'll say, well, you're here by coincidence. You're here because the spirits called you here. That's nice. I mean, if the spirits didn't want you here, you wouldn't be here. I mm. mean, that's the way the spirits work. So now you're part of the ceremony. Sit down or do some dancing. Help us out here with uh, calling the spirits and uh, eat some of the fruit and the rice cakes. You're part of the deal now. And so they're very uh, welcoming in that way. Mm. Um, and, and like I said, they're happy to have their picture taken now because – yeah, put me on Facebook. I want to be famous. Yeah, especially if it's legal. I, I, it must be so nice, David, for you to be able to see that, like, coming to, like, these new things. Because you think you're studying the past. We, we've been talking about sort of 20,000 years and all of this, 500 AD and Bodhidharma. But now it's still happening. And it's not only happening, but it's It's evolving. Happening. Yeah. See, it's very... In Korea, religion is very alive. Yeah. In many, like Christianity is kind of dead in yeah. Europe, yeah. from what I understand. It's rather museum quality. In America, it's still very much a living thing. As you know, we have fanatical believers, new kinds of preachers, new mega churches, and 
uh, evolving doctrines, big debates like over gay ministers and churches are breaking up over that. <coughs> so it's living. That's what a living religion is. Yeah. Now, Korean Buddhism is still very much alive. In Japan, I would say it's much more of a museum quality settled thing where there's really nothing much new. Japanese Zen Buddhism is a rather rote mm. thing. Nothing much new and not very active. And most temples are just kind of art museums now for the public to visit. But in Korean Buddhism, it's still very much alive. Great masters are debating with each other the best path to enlightenment, the best combination of Zen and scholastic Buddhism, how to make it work together since 800 years ago. Mm. They're still debating over it. There's still factions new developments, new great brilliant masters, and new artworks. And so it's very much alive, and Korean shamanism is very much alive, and it's evolving. Mm. Certainly, 20, that's my recent speech was about, 20, to the RAS, was 21st century shamanism, uh, the new evolutions, this legalization, what it's leading to, including artworks of the Types that I've never seen before. Mm -hmm. I'm I often am just amazed wow, yeah. to come to the and inc that includes female spirit artworks, female mountain spirits, and other female depictions that never were before. New stuff happening. It's evolving. Every uh, I missed a few years because of coronavirus, and now I'm back at it. And yeah, they're continuing to evolve. The amazing thing is that sometimes I, for my lectures and research, I study the cultural products, such as the movies, the music and the dramas, mm -hmm. and I don't see anything new. It's all heralded as new. It's all, it's all championed as this yeah. new thing. And I'm like, I've heard this music before. I've seen this yeah, story yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I don't see it. And it's fascinating to me that the things that are portrayed as new are repeating old tropes and the things that are sort of, uh, we yeah. put them as old and dead, you're seeing new things. Can I ask you this question, that throughout this, you've spoken about whether it's Buddhism or shamanism, and I'm sure you would find other examples, as a form, it's psychological, and it also provides a sense of, um, I don't want to, not just comfort is the wrong word, but it like psychological counseling and psychotherapy. Yes, use, yes, you've, yes. you've used these words. And so what I would like to ask you about this is with the rise of modern society and the decrease in religiosity that we observe, are, are those mental health problems, that pulan, that anxiety, that alienation, do we need some kind of religion, whatever religion it is, or non-religion, or, or practice, or community? I don't know how you classify it. Seems. Them. What's your take on that over all these years? Somehow the human brain yeah. is built for religion because you see religion all over the world. Yeah. From you, the spirituality, you see it in Eskimos in Alaska down to the Brazilian jungle, Stone Age people. For, right up through civilization. Mm. Everybody has some kind of religion, mm. although there's always some non-believers within a society, but there's always a religion, always a kind of spirituality. And so our brains seem to be wired for that. Mm. And the idea of prayer and contemplation and communication with God in the West to the idea of meditation and experiencing the oneness of the world more in the East. Mm. But that's something that our brain is capable of doing, and it's 
it likes doing. It, it's a good feeling either to feel the love of Jesus or feel the magnificence of Allah or to feel the oneness of the world in mm. Taoism or Buddhism, the oneness of all things. It's a pleasant and good experience that we crave, and it seems to help us find a mental balance. I think, like in Korea, we have terrible problems of mental illness in the modern age, anxiety and depression, uh, social change really just moving too fast, faster than people can handle it, and economic change. People can't keep up, and the society very much divided into winners and losers, mm -hmm. and if you're on the loser side, it's horrible. All right, we have big problems about I tend to think most of the people suffering like that are not involved in a religious institution. If they were, it would help them. Mm -hmm. Many of these people sitting isolated in their room playing video games all the time and horribly depressed, whatever, uh, if they were active with a church and doing volunteer service and friendly with the other church members, if they were integrated or at a Buddhist temple, same thing, or even active with shamanism out in the mountains, mm -hmm. they would be psychologically healthier it seems a human thing. Mm -hmm. Now, in particular in Korea, with the spirituality being in the mountains, and we know now, by now, it's a medically researched fact, getting out of the city and getting into nature in the mountains is refreshing, it's rehabilitating, it's uh, recreation, recreation of the human being. Um, it's psychologically good for you. Mm, mm. They take either like troubled youth who are gangbangers and such in the city, mm. take them for two weeks out to some great national park, have them working on improving the trails. Their whole psychology improves so much better. They don't want to hurt other people anymore. They... They get more reconciled to society and depressed people. Yeah. Simply a walk in the mountains or in a forest it, or on the seashore, it helps. It yeah. really does. And people have always known this and used that. And it by now it's medically proven in many studies. And one reason why it's not promoted more is nobody makes a profit on that. Uh, they would rather sell you drugs or expensive therapy sessions Simply t telling people to go hike in the mountain, uh, no, uh, it's not profitable and therefore not emphasized nearly as much as it should be. But yeah, it really works. And the spirituality of Korea is in the mountains. Mm -hmm. So not only you go mountain hiking, but you stop by a Buddhist hermitage. Yeah. And you can sit quietly and contemplate some artwork of like the Bodhisattva of Compassion or the Bodhisattva of Wisdom, or the Buddha of Cosmic Energy. You can just contemplate on that and refresh yourself and then continue your hike. Mm. <laughs> you can meditate next to a waterfall. You can do a little dancing ritual out in the forest with the tree spirits. You, you can refresh yourself. And Korean, for those just listening, I was I was nodding in complete agreement when you were talking about nobody makes a profit of it because these days mental health problems are individualized and we're told it's our problem, so we should pay for counseling and pay for drugs. We're mm -hmm. never, it's never suggested that it's an environment or a social problem and that by changing 
our environment. I saw this um, I saw this one thing the other day, and it said, uh, take a bottle of water, and if you buy a bottle of water at a, a supermarket, it will cost you 700 won, and then if you buy it at a pub, it will cost you like 2,000 won, and if you mm. buy it at a stadium, it will cost you 5,000 won. Yes. And so you're, the worth is according to the location. So if you feel worthless, change your location and then you might start feeling worth a bit more it's it, it's it's a very silly thing but it, it's exactly what you're saying that there is something in there and korean people love hiking <laughs> it's only by talking to you now that the most obvious idea is coming up that it might even be subconscious or but there is this great movement of korean people on weekends you see them don't oh, you yeah, at the subway yeah, stations yeah, yeah, yeah. and and we sometimes mock them in the uh in the immigrant or international or expat community that you know they're dressed up in all of these clothes alpine and yeah north face they and, look like the swiss or the bavarians right. yes but i think it's charming yeah because they're into their hobby now, yeah. understand that this has a very modern-only history. Traditional Koreans lived in nature. They lived in villages yeah. with nature all around them. But they did not go hiking in mountains as recreation. The mountains are full of tigers. Yeah. And the tigers were hungry. Uh, you had to carry rocks with you or, or weapons of some kind. Uh, it was dangerous, deadly. Nobody went to the mountains for fun. Mm. You either had to cross the mountains for business or political reasons or um, uh, uh, people going to like collect mushrooms or some such things, ginseng, mm. but very, very defensive and on the, on the watch. It was dangerous out there, bears and tigers and wild boars. Um, it was the dictator Park Chung-hee who set up, starting in the 1960s, set up a national park system, very visionary. Korea was only the 13th country in the world that started national parks. And all the other 12 countries above were rich countries. Mm. You know this. Uh, Park Chung-hee went to the Americans, to the World Bank, controlled by the Americans, asked for money to start a national park system. They declined. They said no. You're a very poor country, just a poor rice farming country. Only rich countries have national parks. No. Park Chung-hee said, screw you. We're going to be rich. I want national parks now. And he took some of the money from the Vietnam War that he was earning from President Johnson for Korean soldiers participating in the Vietnam War, and he started a national park system. And by the 70s, he had also provincial parks, local parks, many of the mountains to help preserve them mm. for the future. And he started a thing of making mountain hiking the national hobby because it was low cost. Mm. He wanted people to not be spending because saving all the national capital for development. So not spending hard currency on importing any sports equipment or such. But... Uh, Go hiking in the mountains. It was free, and you, you know any f low-paid factory worker could afford it. Anybody could, mm. and to enjoy, and it would make them healthier. Spend your Sunday trekking the mountain. Uh, it makes you healthier, and you get to appreciate your country. Also, to see the beauty of Korea and visit the see the old Buddhist temples and the Confucian shrines and such. Appreciate some of national history, national culture. Love your country. And in Korea, that's really true. In the mountains, you see the real Korea, the historic Korea, and you come to love it. 
more and more. So the making hiking to be the national hobby mm. for those reasons. And by the 80s, it was really strong. It really was. Unfortunately, the young people of now, the current young generation, as I found my own students in the university and such, they don't do it so much. They sit in their room and play video games and chat anonymously on the internet, uh, kind of wasting their time. It's physically stagnant, mm -hmm. so it's really bad for health just to sit in some little tiny room and yeah. stare at a screen all day, all night, eating cup ramyun. I mean, oh my God. Really unhealthy lifestyle, and I keep encouraging them. At least I preach to the students, to the young people, get out there in the mountains. They think, oh, only the old people go to the mountains. Mm. Yeah, my parents do that. I don't want to do that. But I tell you, you should. I mean, it's good for you psychologically, and it's good for you physically, mm. and you get to know your own country, and you get to love it better. All that. I used to make I used to make assignments in my class. You <laughs> choose a weekend, yeah. and I don't care if you have a part-time job and whatever. You take some time off, choose a weekend, and go to a national park. Mm. Visit it. Not in Seoul. Far from Seoul. Get out there and experience that and come back and make a presentation about it. I made that part of several of my classes, forcing the students into it. And they hated the assignment, but then they loved it. They came back and they, their yeah. eyes were shining and saying, wow, that was really great. That really interesting history in there. And the temple was really profound. And the mountain was so beautiful. And mm -hmm. the pine trees and the birds. And I, I had no idea that Korea was beautiful. I, all I ever knew was an apartment complex. You know. Um, uh, they really turn them on. And I, I, I so much wish the young generation to get into that. In addition, I'm not condemning what they do entirely, but they're doing it way too much. The only yes. exercise they get is dancing at a nightclub with very confined air. Mm -hmm. um, they don't even have outdoor raves here. Not, <laughs> not enough. No. Outdoor concerts, they should. Um, they... they should get out and do that. It would just be so much better for them, and especially psychologically. It just clears your, your head. Yeah. Sometimes they need to be given the assignment, I think, to do it. I'm, I'm mentoring a, a couple of young adults, and I gave one of them the assignment to mm. go and run five kilometers. And they looked, she looked at me like, what? No, we, we study intellectually. This is you're, you're developing me this way. Yeah, I was, yeah, no, you yeah, go and. Re yeah, and yeah, yeah. when she reported me, she was like, that was one of the most interesting things I've ever done. It was <laughs> that body and mind. And she finally yes, realized it's true. it's true when you get there. But you have to I, I had to give it to her yeah. as an assignment. I couldn't just suggest it. To I could into the zone. Yeah. As we say. Yeah. Exercising. And then with to, to get to stand on the summit of a mountain and look over the landscape, it's a heck of a feeling. So much different than seeing it on video. So oh. much different. Can I can I ask you, David, as, as time uh, pushes us out of this room, unfortunately, yeah. and I will say when uh, the schedule permits, we'll do a whole other episode on things like Taoism and that, which we haven't touched. Oh, we but should. Yeah, we, should. We, we definitely should. Can I speak about, this might be weird, your own enlightenment? You've, I, I can see the grimace on your face, but please bear with me because you've talked about the 
the benefits, the psychological benefits, the learning. And when you describe all of this, you say we and our when you speak about Korea. And I, I find mm. that beautiful, by the way. Mm. Um, but during all this, have you learned any lessons? Have you achieved any sense of maybe enlightenment's a strong word? Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the apt word. But have you gained any wisdom? Have you learned from your extensive research and lived experiences of Buddhism and shamanism and all this, is, is is there anything that you've you've stumbled across that you think, yes, that there's oh. something there? Well, certainly, yes. I mean, first of all, simply I've matured like everyone does. <laughs> mm. As you get older, you should get wise. Mm. Some don't, mm. certainly, but uh, you should. And within whatever your culture offers as wisdom, and in my case, an adopted culture, all right, from Korean Buddhism, I've learned to clean up my psychology to see what's real and what's false and to not be attached, not have big desires and craving, but to uh, go with the world as it is and as it presents itself. From Taoism, I've learned to appreciate nature and with shamanism also to feel the spirits. I don't see and hear spirits. I never have followed the Korean mountain spirit for 40 years. I've, I've seen so many paintings and statues. I've done the prayers. I've done the chanting. But I have never seen what a spirit has never appeared to me. Mm. Shamans often said it would, or Buddhist monks told me, you will, you keep praying here, you will see the mountain spirit. It never happened. I've never heard one talking to me. I'm just not that type. That means you're a true believer then, I think, well, doesn't it? Well, non-schizo. Yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I've learned those kinds of wisdom and got it down deep and mm -hmm. with so much mountain hiking and being in nature and really feeling the benefits that we just described of that and knowing that it's true and having that deep inside of me. I've, I've become a much calmer person and more gentle and more just in accordance with nature and kind to others, learning really the value of kindness. From Korean Neo-Confucianism, which many people either overlook or look down on mm. as something of a, what stagnated Korean society and oppressed women and had a caste system. And that, that's all true. But there's some really good wisdom in it, too. Buddhism and Taoism, they more teach being away from the world, like mm. how you achieve a certain wisdom and such apart from the world out on the mountain. But Confucianism has a lot of teachings of how you behave in society. Mm. So I, mm. by studying Korean Neo-Confucianism, I got, I think, a lot of good lessons on how I be a professor as a, prof as a, uh, a job, uh, about how to act properly, how to behave with students and mentor them and such. Uh, Confucianism's all about that, the, the kindness and benevolence mm. to that and how to be a proper husband and father to my son mm. and how to be a proper citizen in society, the, the right attitudes. Uh, Neo-Confucianism teaches very, very much and very well about how to operate in society in these ways, how to play your role, mm. figure out what your role is and should be and how to play that role properly so that you benefit other people and that you don't hurt yourself and you don't drive yourself to drink over it, uh, as we say. So yes, in all those ways, I feel 
I've grown up, matured. I've gained a lot from all this. I gained some things from my original Christianity that I was raised in. Of course, the, as you get older, you realize the value of the, the Christian values of being good to others, forgive your enemies, yeah. don't hold grudges, try to love your enemy. It is so difficult that <laughs> try and try to go for peace. Like as the Pope is always saying every year, world peace, that's mm-hmm. what we want. So those values, too, from the West uh, mix in with that together, surely. But altogether, yeah, I think I think by 65, I have a pretty stable mind and I'm mm. pretty happy most every day. And I'm a loving person with those around me, mm. my friends, my family. And I try to help others as best I could. I try to mentor the young, including like in practical ways now with that. I'm an advisor to several associations of travel, uh, travel guides, tour mm-hmm. guides, mm-hmm. tour guides um, of Seoul and Kyungju and such, uh, the Korean tour guides. And I, I, I try to mentor them on better English, just helping them out yeah. and explaining Korea a little better to the tourists because I'm so good at it, I would have to say. Mm. I am. Everybody tells me I am. And so I try to help them to become better. And I feel it's a kind of obligation. Yeah. Uh, when you are a professor, you know, there's like a social obligation to mm. help, to teach society, to offer useful suggestions, and to mentor the youngers in a safe way, and you know, not to hit on them or um, <laughs> to be uh, not to be sleazy in any way or yeah. try, try to exploit them for money. Even, but I genuinely try to help those students. I, I I feel in that space and pretty happy with it. What you describe, I I take as needing humility, humility to learn from. You don't just find all the answers within. That's a very nice way of looking at it. But you need humility to look at shamanism and buddhism and christianity and taoism and Mm -hmm. other cultures and other ways of life you need the humility to to learn from other things and open your mind and bring them all in and and then with that humility but comes an obligation and so Mm -hmm. it's not just about Mm -hmm. doing what you want to do all the time or what feels good you have obligations to to play a role and, and, and to work and to serve you, the protection and the giving you, you mentioned yes, with yes, the, the, yes, the Buddhist yes, earlier. And yes. I, I think those two values are really nice. Can I ask you, maybe this is a bit personal. You've said a couple of times about not going to the drink. I was with uh, Mr. Fit. You don't have to go this way, but it bothers me personally, my own relationship with alcohol. I'm, I'm doing a little bit better now, but it's one that I, I fight a continuous battle with. I was with Mr. Philip Galman uh, the other night, and he he mentioned to me that he believes you had stopped drinking, but now I, I'm here with you. So, me? Yeah. No, I have not stopped drinking. Are you winning the battle? Well, I never... It hasn't been a battle with me. I'm no. I'm not an addictive person. Mm-hmm. I was whether it was tobacco or cocaine or alcohol. I have the good fortune mm-hmm. to not be an addictive personality. Mm-hmm. There is such a thing, and yeah. 
there are some people who just easily fall into addiction, and it can also be gambling addiction or right. sex addiction or some certain things. I've always been able to take it and enjoy it some, like whether playing poker or drinking whiskey or you know, back in the old days in San Francisco, the cocaine. Just have it some and enjoy it and be good and then leave it alone and mm. walk away uh, for some time. I did... I, pro I had a decade previously where really I drank too much, I would say, and uh, career problems and uh, just uh, some health problems that were just keeping me at home too much and as such. And I did drink too much, I thought, but then I was able to just gradually move away from that. And now I drink a little. Is what we call a social drinker or s sometimes at home watching it, to watch a good movie, just a mm -hmm. couple a few shots was there a move or did it just happen naturally that that yeah i'm not a person that makes violent um stuff actually a year ago just about a year ago i was diagnosed with diabetes and it seems to be that my pancreas failed because of coronavirus oh, wow. um, at least that's what the doctor thinks he's seen a whole pattern of this with older people mm mostly Koreans, but with me, uh, a few months after having COVID, suddenly a diabetes problem, which I never had before in my life. So actually, I stopped drinking for like five, six months. Mm. I didn't drink at all because you're not supposed to. But I got the diabetes well under control through habit medication and more high-protein food and all that. So mm. I started having the occasional drink again. Uh, doesn't seem to hurt me. I don't drink a bunch of beer because that's high carbohydrate mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. more of the hard liquors that are low carb yeah pack a punch yeah with less cost so whatever you know i deal with it i manage it and mm. i i don't think i have a problem and i don't see it as a battle mm. although some people such as my wife would tell me not to drink at all and it would be better for you if you didn't but i do enjoy it yeah i is it sitting watching a good movie or sometimes out at a bar socially with the friends chatting it's a good feeling yeah um, it is it's just enjoyable it makes life better and if you don't overdo it if you don't smash yourself out then mm. anyway you can stay up a couple hours sober up and then get a real good sleep and next day you're fine so uh, manageable mm. this was also enjoyable mr mason thank you very much I, i'm glad to end it like this but right. we'll do it again next time thank you good thank you david for having me